Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. The incidence of bacterial infections caused by multidrug resistant organisms, including extended spectrum beta-lactamase enterobacteriales, or ESBLE, is increasing, and this can lead to significant morbidity and mortality. Relying on culture and sensitivity data alone when making treatment decisions may lead to inappropriate treatment that results in suboptimal outcomes or unnecessary use of broad-spectrum antibiotics. Genotypic data combined with sensitivity data and an understanding of the underlying resistance mechanisms of ESBLE can assist in choosing an appropriate treatment agent. Here to help navigate this conundrum is our friend and internal medicine pharmacist colleague, Dr. Sarah Chase. Before we dive into today's topic, I just wanted to first set the stage by introducing a common patient scenario that may be encountered in an inpatient setting. Imagine that you are the pharmacist covering a team and you have a patient that is being treated empirically with piperacillin tazobactam or Zosin, as I will refer to it for the remainder of the presentation today. They're being treated empirically for a gram-negative bacteremia while awaiting culture and susceptibility report or results. Today is day three of therapy, and the team on rounds mentions to you that the culture and sensitivity results have returned, which show that the bacteremia is caused by an E. coli bacteria that shows non-susceptibility to ceftriaxone, however, it does show that it is susceptible to zosin. They turn to you as the pharmacist and ask what they should do in the scenario. Are they okay to continue the Zosin or should they switch to another agent? How would you respond in this situation? And I may not expect you to know the answer now, but hopefully by the end of this presentation, you would be able to answer that question. And then hopefully I'll be able to give you some tools to understand how to treat ESBL infections. Some of the learning objectives that I hope that you'll gain from this presentation presentation today are to be able to identify the most common ESBL producing bacteria, the common ESBL resistance genes, recognizing the use and limitations in our identification methods to um, identify potential ESBL producers, and then lastly, be able to discuss clinical trial data and IDSA guidance to assist in our treatment selection for treating these infections. To start off with today's discussion, we'll discuss the incidence of extended spectrum beta-lactamase enterobacteriales, or ESBLE for short, which is how I'll be referring to it for this presentation. In 2017, the CDC reported that approximately 197,000 cases of ESBL infections occurred, which were responsible for approximately 9,000 deaths in the United States that year. This incidence is also increasing with a noted increase of about 50% in a five-year period between 2012 and 2017. It's also important to note that the effects of this um, incidence increase is not seen only at a national level, but also locally. Um, specifically within Mayo Clinic, um, presence of ESBL can range from 9 to 12% for our common ESPL producers based on our 2021 antibiogram. 
Additionally, it's important to note that of these infections, approximately half of these ESBL infections originate from the community setting, whereas only a small percentage originate from settings that we would more typically associate with multi-drug resistance organisms, such as long-term care facilities and hospitals. This is important to note as multi-drug resistant infections um, are commonly associated with healthcare settings. However, um, it's becoming more and more common with antimicrobial resistance on the rise to see these patients presenting with these resistant infections from the community. And then based on this increasing incidence, I'm sorry, I'm going away. Based on the increasing incidence, um, the CDC has determined ESBLE to be a serious threat per their 2019 antibiotic resistance report. This indicates that um, more attention and action is required by healthcare workers to help prevent the spread of this resistance and also reduce the risk of worsening resistance. However, before we discuss how we can take action as healthcare providers in preventing this, um, resistance, let's first establish what an ESBL actually is and how we identify ESBL infections. So at a very basic level, beta-lactamases are enzymes that hydrolyze the beta-lactam ring of beta-lactam antibiotics, which renders them ineffective against that bacteria. Some bacteria do naturally produce these beta-lactamases. However, they're uh, the beta-lactamase enzymes have also been developed by the bacteria as a result of exposure to beta-lactam antibiotics as a survival mechanism. There's many different types of beta-lactamases. Some of the more common groups are penicillinases, cephalosporinases, carbapenemases, and oxycillinases. And each of these groups do have different resistance patterns and um, specific <laughs> resistance mechanisms depending on what family they belong to. Some of the common cephalosporinases that we see are AMP-C and then extended spectrum beta-lactamases, which is what we will be focusing on for today's presentation. Specifically regarding ESBLs, there's quite a few different ways to categorize, categorize and classify ESBLs based on different structural and functional categories. However, there's specific resistance mechanisms that um, are part of these ESBL enzymes is truly dictated by the genetic sequence that encodes the enzyme being created. This table just demonstrates some of the, a small fraction of the total ESBL enzymes that have been identified thus far. Another important factor to consider when looking at ESBL infections is that these resistance genes are commonly transferred between bacteria via mobile genetic elements such as plasmids. So that means that these bacteria are not always inherently resistant to different antibiotics by having these genetic um, resistance genes encoded into their chromosomes, but rather these resistance genes can transfer between bacteria via these mobile genetic elements. So bacteria may not initially appear that they have this resistance, but over time they can acquire the resistance. Some of our more common ESBL enzymes that are present include TEM, SHV, CTXM, and OXA, each of which have their own specific resistance patterns and mechanism of resistance. Additionally, each of these groups has subgroups within them that can have subtle differences in their resistance patterns. However, for today's presentation, we will be primarily focused on CTXM, which is the most common ESBL gene that is identified in the United States. 
CTXM typically confers resistance to third-generation cephalosporins and monobactams, but typically does retain susceptibility to um, clavulonate. And while this is the most common ESBL gene identified, it is important to consider that ESBL infections can also be caused by these other resistance genes. And especially when we're thinking about in the future that even though CTXM must be, might be our most common um, enzyme right now, that there is a potential that these other enzymes could become more prevalent clinically in the future. Our common ESBL producing bacteria include E. coli, Proteus mirabilis, Klebsiella pneumonia, and Klebsiella oxytoca. So those are the most common that we'll see um, as the ESBL producers. And then it is important to note that any gram-negative bacteria do have the potential to create ESBLs. And this does bring me to my first polling question. Um, typically, we use poll everywhere to answer these questions. However, we have been having some connectivity issues today, as you can see. Um, so feel free to give it a try. I'll give it just a little bit. And if anyone's, if we're not getting any responses, we can just walk through the answer here. Um, I would agree with the majority of our answers with answer B being the correct answer because E. coli is one of our common producers of ESBL and CTXM is our most common enzyme that, is, that we have in practice. A and C are incorrect because SHB and TEM, while they are common ESBL genes, they are not our most common that we see. And then D is incorrect because actinobacter is not one of our most common ESBL producers. Now moving into how we identify ESBL. Currently, there are three major methods that we can be used to assess for the presence of ESBL enzymes, which include phenotypic tests, phenotypic confirmatory testing, and genotypic tests. And while these options can provide useful information to clinicians in deciding on an antimicrobial agent to use in these infections, no method is perfect in identifying the presence of ESBL. So it's important to understand the appropriate use and limitations with each of these tests um, when interpreting their results to help you select the appropriate antimicrobials. The first identification method that we will discuss is phenotypic results, which primarily uses culture and sensitivity data. For this identification method, ceftazidime or ceftriaxone non-susceptibility is utilized as a proxy for ESBL identification, which reflects the common resistance pattern seen with ESBL enzymes, specifically CTXM. This method is very commonly used in practice because it is feasible for most labs to perform, and it does not require much extra um, equipment or process in, to um, complete versus just doing a regular culture and sensitivity test. However, there are some limitations with this testing, um, specifically, Ambiguity is a big issue because it does require or rely on clinicians to interpret the non-susceptibility as being a potential proxy for ESBL presence. And if not interpreted correctly, it may lead to the selection of non-preferred antimicrobials, especially because some of our non-preferred agents can show susceptibility on those results. This method also does not identify the underlying resistance mechanism. So it's important to note that ceftriaxone um, non-susceptibility can be caused by other types of resistance mechanisms. So just because that is non-susceptible, that doesn't necessarily mean it's caused by ESBL. Specifically, AMP-C is another type of resistance mechanism that could be causing um, ceftriaxone non-susceptibility. And then lastly, the time delay in results is also a limitation. Um, we all know that it might take up to 48 hours for culture and sensitivity results to return, 
which may increase the chance that an ineffective empiric agent is chosen for treatment. One thing that has been done and was implemented to help improve the, sen the sensitivity of using um, culture and sensitivity data to identify the presence of ESBL is that the Clinical Laboratory Standards Institute in 2010 recommended using lowered MIC breakpoints for many beta-lactam antibiotics. This change helped to improve the sensitivity in identifying ESBLs based on the ceftriaxone or ceftazidime non-susceptibility, and then also helps improve the reliability of that data so we can trust it a little bit more with these lower breakpoints. And then ultimately, this reduced the need for completing confirmatory testing, which was a common practice before these changes were implemented. An example of how this phenotypic information would be presented alongside the culture and susceptibility data within Mayo, specifically at Rochester, is shown on this slide. This comment warns clinicians of the possible presence of an ESBL bacteria based on ceftriaxone or ceftazidine non-susceptibility. And then it's also helpful because it does provide some guidance on the selection of um, the preferred antimicrobials for this type of infection. Previously, and within Rochester, this comment did just appear on blood isolates of bacteria. However, um, it will now be showing on non-urinary isolates as well for E. coli, Proteus mirabellus, and Klebsiella pneumonia. This comment does help to limit some of the ambiguity that can be in involved in interpreting those uh, culture and susceptibility reports. The second type of test that can be used is phenotypic confirmatory testing. This method detects the presence of extended spectrum enzymes in Enterobacterales that are not carrying AMPC. So it basically helps differentiate between those resistance mechanisms by identifying the presence of an ESBL enzyme. And this was commonly used to, as a secondary confirmatory test to verify our culture and susceptibility report. However, there are multiple limitations involved with these tests, including inaccuracy in results when multiple resistance mechanisms are present. And then also, because there's many different methods to complete this type of testing, there's high interlaboratory variability in the accuracy of the results. Because of these limitations and with the new institution of the lowered MIC breakpoints, routine phenotypic confirmatory testing is no longer recommended when identifying these ESBL infections. And then the last method that we will discuss that can be used to identify the presence of ESBL is genotypic testing. And this type of test utilizes a genetic target to identify the presence of a resistance gene. One of the major benefits in using genotypic testing is that the results are typically available before the phenotypic data through the culture and susceptibility reports is available, typically within a couple hours versus a couple of days. Another benefit in having these results early is that it can help with the selection of empiric treatments um, rather than waiting for that culture and susceptibility to return. And then you found out that you did not have a patient on the correct treatment agent. However, um, an important limitation to consider with these types of tests, with our widely commercially available tests that are used in practice, they only detect the presence of CTXM and not the other types of ESBL enzymes. And while this can be beneficial in ruling in an ESBL infection, it can be less helpful to rule out an infection because if it's negative, that doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't another ESBL enzyme that's causing the resistance. 
And then an example of how this would show within Mayo Clinic Rochester. Currently at Rochester, it is just used as a, as a part of an ammonia biofire panel. The box shows how it would report along with the culture and sensitivity results, indicating that CTXM enzyme has been detected, which indicates that it is a probable ESPL producer, and again, provides that guidance on selecting the preferred antimicrobial agents. Other sites at Mayo do use this type of testing for other isolates, for example, blood isolates, but in Rochester, it is just currently being utilized on respiratory isolates. And so in summary, to review those three types of identification methods, phenotypic tests utilizes the culture and sensitivity data, um, specifically the ceftriaxone, ceftazidine non-susceptibility to indicate that an ESBL may be present. And lowered MIC breakpoints does help improve the reliability of these results. Phenotypic testing has a lot of limitations, so it is no longer routinely recommended to be used. We don't routinely use it here within Mayo, and um, there's multiple limitations involved with those tests. And then genotypic tests do detect the presence of an ESBL enzyme, specifically CTXM. These do help us rule in an infection and help with the selection of empiric agents. However, if negative, um, results need to be taken or interpreted correctly. And then just to briefly review how these tests would be used within Mayo to help apply this clinically or see how an example would play out with when to use these different tests. Within Mayo Clinic Rochester, this is our process that we use. So the different types of tests depend on what culture is collected. For blood isolates within Mayo, there is a rapid susceptibility panel that is available. So this would give you your susceptibility results quicker than the full culture and sensitivity report, typically within a couple hours. So you might see those results come back more quickly. And then also our culture and susceptibility data, of course. For respiratory isolates, we do have the geno genotypic biofire test available, which would help us identify if the CTXM enzyme is present before the culture and susceptibility data would return. And then for other isolates, we would just complete culture and susceptibility data. And that comment regarding ceftriaxone or ceftazidine non-susceptibility on the culture and susceptibility report appears for all non-urinary non isolates for E. coli, Proteus mirabilis, and then the Klebsiella pneumoniae. So this brings me into the second question. It doesn't look like I'm getting the air, so maybe it won't work. Um, second question is, what is the limitation of utilizing ceftriaxone non-susceptibility as a proxy for ESBL identification? I will agree with the majority as well on this question with um, the delay in results possibly leading to the selection of a non-preferred agent with our culture and susceptibility data. Question or answer A is incorrect because these tests are fairly feasible to be completed by most laboratories. C is incorrect because the lowered MIC breakpoints reduced the need to, requ to require phenotypic confirmatory testing so that it's not routinely done anymore. And then answer option D is a limitation of phenotypic confirmatory testing. So for the remainder of the presentation today, I will focus on the treatment of ESBL infections. And the majority or the recommendations that I will be discussing today come from the 2022 IDSA guidance update for the treatment of ESBL. These recommendations are primarily or based on two major factors to consider when selecting an antimicrobial agent for treatment and assessing the appropriateness of that agent. 
These include the site of infection and then also the severity of illness. The three major recommendations that we will be discussing today are listed here, with the first one being that carbapenems are preferred for ESBL infections outside of the urinary tract. This recommendation primarily is based on the findings from the Merino trial, which compared zosin to meropenem for the treatment of ESBL bacteremia. This trial was an international multi-center non-inferiority randomized controlled trial. It included patients with at least one positive blood culture for E. coli or Klebsiella pneumoniae that was non-susceptible to ceftriaxone or ceftotaxime, but did retain susceptibility to zosin. Patients were randomized to receive either zosin or meropenem, and then the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. The main reason that the investigators of this trial chose zosin as the comparator was to see if it could potentially be used as a carbapenem sparing option for ESBL infections. When looking at their results, all-cause mortality occurred in a larger proportion of patients in the zosin group at 12.3% compared to only 3.7% in the meropenem group. However, when interpreting these results, there are a lot of other factors to consider. Specifically, looking at the supplemental information included in the trial, the researchers did provide extra details on what the causes of those fatal adverse events were, and none of the causes were categorized as being directly related to the trial drug. A lot of the deaths, and specifically in the Zosin group, were related to advanced cancer or other comorbid conditions. So this may indicate that the Zosin group had a higher mortality rate due to other reasons rather than just the trial drug that they were selected to receive. Other important things to note is differences in baseline characteristics, specifically looking at the amount of patients that were categorized as having a UTI source for their infection. The meropenem group had more patients in this group compared to zosin, and a secondary um, bivarial by variable analysis by the researchers actually found that having UTI being the source of the bacteremia resulted in a lower mortality rate. And then also for immunocompromised patients, there was more immunocompromised patients in the zosin group when compared to meropenem. So again, just shows that some of these baseline characteristics potentially could have played into the higher mortality rates seen in the zosin group. Patients were randomized within 72 hours of the blood culture to receive either agent, and they were assessed on that for inclusion based on what the susceptibility results showed. And until that time, they did receive empiric antibiotics. The duration of the treatment was a minimum of four days, maximum of 14 days. And at day five, the primary treatment team assessed the patients for if they were to continue the trial drug, be able to stop antibiotics or switch to a step-down therapy option. And it's important to note in the protocol, there wasn't any specific um, options that were provided to those researchers or the treatment teams. So it was really based on what they decided to use. And while this may reflect more closely to real world practice, it does again, provide some additional confounders that could be um, contributing to the outcomes that we're seeing. And then lastly, for secondary outcomes, the majority, or they didn't have any statistically significant differences 
um, specifically looking at the resolution of clinical and microbiological infection at day four, there's no statistically significant difference. And that would be kind of the time point where the treatment teams would be assessing if the step-down therapy was needed, if the antibiotic was to be continued, or if they could stop antibiotics altogether. But ultimately, from this trial, um, Zosin was not found to be non-inferior to meropenem for ESBL bacteremia. These results also play into the second recommendation from the IDSA that Zosin is not recommended for ESBL infections outside of the urinary tract, but may be used for uncomplicated cystitis. A few smaller trials have evaluated the use of Zosin compared to carbapenems for the treatment of urinary isolates of ESBL. One specifically was a multi-center open-label trial that included patients with healthcare-associated UTIs in which ESBL was identified as the causative organism. Patients were randomized to receive ertapenem, zosin, or cefepime um, with a primary outcome of resolution of fever and UTI symptoms within five days. Of note, the, the cefepime group is fairly small because they were um, that arm was stopped early due to an increased rate of or increased failure rates in the cefepime group. The treatment duration for this um, trial was 10 to 14 days, which is just something to note since that is fairly different than our current recommendations for the treatment of uncomplicated cystitis. The primary outcome was clinical success rates, which was defined as the resolution of fever and UTI symptoms at five days. It did occur in high percentages of both the Zosin and the Ertapenem groups at greater than 90%, and there was no statistically significant difference was seen between the two groups. Additionally, a secondary outcome that was evaluated was 28-day mortality, which was 6.1% in both the Zosin and the Ertapenem groups. So based on these, this trial, um, it indicates that Zosin can be a reasonable option for treatment of uncomplicated cystitis caused by ESBL when compared to Ertapenem. A second study was a multi-center observational study that evaluated the use of Zosin compared to carbapenems for patients um, hospitalized with ESBL pyelonephritis. This study evaluated patients that received either Zosin or carbapenems within 48 hours of an initial um, ESBL positive urinary culture with signs and symptoms of pyelonephritis, and where they were assessed for the primary outcome, which was the development of recurrent cystitis or pyelonephritis at seven days. For the primary outcome, there was no difference seen between the Zosin and the carbapenem groups. And additionally, they also assessed mortality at 30 days and no difference was seen. So this trial indicates that there's a potential use for using Zosin in more complicated urinary infections such as pyelonephritis. However, this trial was small, observational, and so that does limit the strengths of these conclusions. And then the last recommendation that we will discuss today is the recommendation against the use of cefepime in ESBL infections outside of the urinary tract, um, however, considering that as an option for uncomplicated cystitis. This recommendation is based on data from multiple small retrospective trials. The first study listed in the table was a study that evaluated carbapenem versus cefepime for symptomatic ESBL UTIs. The primary outcome was um, clinical failure and no patients in either group experienced that. So based on that, we could consider cefepime as being a potential option for UTI, uncomplicated UTIs caused by ESBL. 
The last two studies compared cefepime to carbapenems for ESBL bacteremia and both assessed mortality rates. And with these um, trials, the researchers found a trend towards increased mortality in the cefepime group. And these conclusions are fairly, fairly weak. Um, however, with the until we have more data to support the use of cefepime in bacteremia infections caused by ESBL, it's currently not recommended based on the small um, trial data that we have. And then lastly, just as an important point to note, and because it's always something that we could should consider in these infections, are what our step-down therapy options are for ESBL infections. The preferred agents for most infections are flor fluoroquinolones or sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim, and then for uncomplicated cystitis, the preferred options are nitrofurantoin or sulfamethoxazole, trimethoprim. This doesn't differ too much from our current guidelines. Um, these options are nice because they are not beta-lactams, so they will not be um, at risk for resistance to these ESBLs. Mm -hmm. However, something important to consider is that these ESBL infections typically do not occur in a vacuum. So a lot of times if a bacteria is exhibiting ESBL, it also may be, have multiple resistance mechanisms going on. So it's always important when you're looking at your step-down options to refer back to your culture and susceptibility reports to help guide that decision. And then here is the last question for today. The question is, what would be the best agent to treat an ESBL bacteremia based on our trial data that we discussed? Well, it looks like we've all learned something from today's presentation, hopefully. Um, so I agree with the right answer being ertapenem um, based on the results of the Merino trial. And based on those results as well is why Zosin is not a preferred agent for the treatment of ESBL bacteremia. Cefepime would also be the incorrect answer because what we have so far for data regarding cefepime and bacteremia is that it does show a trend towards increased mortality when compared to carbapenems. And then ceftazidime would be incorrect because many ESBLs exhibit resistance to ceftazidime. So in summary today, some of the key points that I hope you all walk away with are that the appropriate interpretation and understanding the use and limitations of our phenotypic and genotypic data is really imperative in making sure that we are identifying these ESBL infections and selecting the preferred agents for treatment. Most common ESBL producers are E. coli, Klebsiella, and Proteus mirabilis. CTXM is the most common ESBL enzyme that's seen. However, it's important to note that there are others and current genotypic tests only do identify CTXM. And then carbapenems are the preferred agents for ESBL bacteremia. Other agents such as zosin and cefepime may be considered for use in uncomplicated infections caused by ESBL. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.